Well, thank you to those who have led us to this point today, uh, both in song and, and prayer and uh, in that reading. I've got to say that this passage uh, ruins me. I just feel every time I've preached on this, this was actually the first message I ever preached was on this passage when I was a university student. And uh, in sitting in the corrals in a university, uh, before I went to preach this to a, a discipleship group, I can remember thinking, who is worthy of this? This is uh, profound. It's otherworldly. And yet it is in this world that we have this experience related to us. And we don't live in this world because we theologically live in the other side of a cross. We no longer need to approach the Lord through a tabernacle. But uh, this passage shows us something about the God whom we approach here nonetheless when we come here this day. I wonder why you came this morning. And when you came, what did you expect was going to happen? What are you doing here? So here is a story of a man who, and if we're led to put the pieces together here, we, we have the story of a priest. This was a man who was a professional religious person. He was familiar with this territory. He went in and out of God's house quite uh, comfortably. It didn't uh, disturb him. In fact, this may even be an event that has happened on that great day of the Jewish calendar, the Day of Atonement. Because Isaiah is uh, a formidable figure in the Old Testament. But this is a day that changed him. And he went from being Isaiah, the one everyone knew, the priest, to Isaiah, the most significant prophet of the Old Testament era. This man ends up serving the Lord for 50 years through the reigns of five kings, both mediocre and majestic. And he utters God's word directly to God's people for that time. And he doesn't put it down to his own brilliance. He puts it down to this incident that we read about here. So will you come with me as we move through this passage that we've just had read to us so beautifully and we pause to see this issue. The question I'm asking myself as I read this passage, as I read it to you slowly this morning, is if this is our God, which it is, if this is our Lord Jesus, which it is, then what are the indicators in our own experience that he has drawn near? How do we read the marks of his presence? This is a story told briefly in two halves. It's a story of the experience of his call and then the content of the call from verses 9 onwards. What he's called to follows who has called him, the one who is called. That's how the passage breaks down. We read that in the year the king Uzziah died, he saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, but he never tells us what he saw. Such a vision could not be put into words. It would be a strict form of idolatry if he tried. 
but he pinpoints the calendar date. It was that year Uzziah died. Now, King Uzziah had been a good king. He'd been a very capable administrator. Things were running well. Been around for a while. And then when a king like that dies, the whole nation is in sort of some sort of fluctuation. You know, it's a, a change of season. What's going to happen now? That's a question on everyone's lips. Are things going to fall apart? Will this be a no-backstop Brexit? <laughs> or what will it be like? And what concerns Isaiah is not who is sitting on the human throne, but who is sitting on the throne of Israel, which is in the heart of the temple, the altar of God. And he's one day walking through the temple and it seems like he is about to enter the Holy of Holies where only the high priest could enter. So that says something about his station. And he grabs hold of the curtain that separates the altar from the inner sanctuary from the middle part of this temple. He pulls that curtain back and it's a little heavier than usual and he puts his shoulder into it and then he notices hey, this curtain is a little thicker than usual. And his eyes follow the train of that curtain and he discovers that he's tugging on the hem of the cloak of God. And he didn't expect that. He was just going to waltz in there and do the liturgy. He was going to sprinkle some incense. He was going to sprinkle some blood. And he's in the very presence of the Almighty just like you and I. You know, we don't really expect to bump into God, even when we're in the holy place of worship. This day God rolled up, and Isaiah was different as a result. What are those differences? The train of God's robe fills the temple, and it's saying something about the very fact that this God is not just in a box. He's not contained in this temple. He transcends the categories of the Old Testament and the Old Covenant. He is that plus some. His train fills the temple, but this God cannot be contained by the covenant, the Old Covenant. He is beyond that. And at that point, Isaiah's senses are blurred because above this being which we don't get to see the description, he sees these majestic beings flying, seraphs. A.W. Tozer, the great saint, who's good to see his books are back in print. If you want to read something for your soul, read some Tozer. He once said this phrase that if an angel of God simply came into our worship services and sat in the back pew right next to Mason <laughs> um, and sat there, then we mortals would have all the trouble in the world preventing ourselves from bowing down and worshipping that being. And yet they are creatures like us. So majestic they are, Isaiah's eyes now look upon them. And they, they, it tells us something about the God we worship in terms of the temple categories. It tells us something about the God we worship in that these beings who are familiar with his presence, they serve him, They've got six wings and with two they cover their private parts. With two they dare and look upon him. And all they can do is utter compulsive peons of praise moment after moment. Holy, 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 the thrice holy God. He is the definition of holiness. He is holiness personified. 
And that's all they can do is to sing his praises. If you get to the end of the Bible, you open the book of Revelation, you look at Revelation 4, guess what? They're still singing that same song. Holy, 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 except now they sing, is the one who died and lives and reigns. This same God. This is the God who is here this morning. This is a God in whose name we gather and in whose presence we sit even though you don't expect it. This is the one that the angels worship and they have no ability to resist worshipping. That's the tendency that happens that when the holy God draws near, worship becomes spontaneous. This incandescent holiness of God pulls it from his beings and they must worship him. All creation must worship him. You know that God draws near when praise does not have to be worked up, but is compulsive. And then look at the human reaction in verse 5. In this, as we move our eyes from the, the hymns of the, the angels or the seraphs, he, we come back to the prophet. And his response is, and he said, Woe is me! I'm lost! I'm shattered! I'm destroyed! For I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell amongst people of unclean lips. Suddenly, when the Lord draws near, you notice what Isaiah feels. He does not feel finite. It's not that he feels limited in the, in the midst of the infinite. It's that he feels sinful in the midst of holiness. You know when the knowledge draws near, then suddenly your perspective changes. He also knows of himself that he is conspicuous to this God. There's a lot of people who talk about having a vision of God or a lot of mystics who have a vision of the mystery or what have you, but I don't think they have. Because when God draws near... You become conspicuously aware of your own fissures and flaws and your own moral failings. That is the picture that we have here. That this one, Christianity, when you come close to God through the Holy Spirit's living in your life, it's firstly, firstly, it's a place of torment, not a place of peace. It's a place where you become conspicuously aware that you don't match up. Not only that, but you suddenly become aware that you keep company with people who don't match up. This Isaiah knows that the whole nation is just like him. In fact, he's more like the nation and less like a priest than he should be. He doesn't match up even though he's got the braid to show for it. When the Lord draws near, proper perspective returns. We suddenly see ourselves as God sees us. And that's a sign of his blessing that he's actually coming into our presence. The wonderful human reaction here is that Isaiah doesn't just put on a happy face and say, well, good to see you. He doesn't try and laminate over his imperfections. He's got nowhere to hide. He confesses his imperfections. 
He is honest about them. And as compulsive as the praise of the angels was in the presence of the holiness of God, so automatically is the confession of sin of the human who has seen God. It's a sure sign that God, the Lord of holiness, has drawn near. Whenever there is a revival, whenever God gets hold of his church in real terms, sin is always number one issue on the agenda. I remember my uncle telling me of a time and others who were in that period in, uh, where a revival broke out in the southern highlands of Papua New Guinea in the, in the 70s, coincident with the translation of a particular book of scripture. God spoke to the people through that book. It was fascinating that the next days they would go out and they'd see in their backyard day by day all the, 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 the material goods that they'd, the, the locals had stolen from the missionaries over the years would be returned and would fill their backyard. Even some things which were never the missionaries were still filling their backyard. That's a sure sign that you know that God has drawn near when people start dealing with their stuff rather than covering over, putting makeup on it. God has drawn near when perspective returns and we see ourselves as we really are. Well, God sees Israel in this time. And he sees a nation which is nothing like his blueprint, the old covenant. He wanted a holy people and instead he got Israel. He sees a nation that is filled with extortion, where the law courts are corrupt. If you can pay for law, you get your justice. Otherwise, forget it. Extortion is rife. But what is really in Isaiah's sights, as you read the rest of the book, is that this people sets its sights upon the nations and they're more like the nations around them, particularly when it comes to idolatry. They want to bet each way. They want a bit of Baal, a bit of Ashtaroth. They want a bit of Philistine religion, a bit of Arabic religion. They want to be like the Edomites and the Moabites. They want to hedge their bets. Oh, they want to keep Christmas and Easter, if you like. They want to keep the religious festivals going. They're Yahweh's people, but God is not enough to them. The Lord is not enough. They're what they call syncretistic. They absorb everything and to sum up, they're one disappointing people. It is as if these people have not had Isaiah's vision. It's as if they've seen God through a telescope turned around the wrong way. And what is local is majestic and massive. What is of God is distant and forgettable. It's a tragic situation when the people of God have the telescope not shining on God and blowing him up but on, on themselves. But I see the same today in today's church, in our church. I'm not talking about the Catholic church or the liberal church, if I can put those two words in the same sentence. I'm talking about the contemporary evangelical church. What does God see when he sees us? He might not see murder and extortion, I hope. <laughs> but... You know, the other day I was opening my Facebook and I, I shouldn't do it. It's a terrible waste of time. But I, I was looking at a friend, uh, what he is putting on uh, his Facebook and he is, he is trying to encourage his readership that, you know, what we should be doing today is breaking church down into small groups and having tables and coffee and that sort of thing because that's working, you know. 
and, and, and it's a new organisational arrangement. So if you break up the flocks or break up the paddocks and have less sheep per flock, somehow that's going to save the church. Now, 10 years ago, if you'd read the same Facebook, you would have seen people talking about the only church that's going to survive is the big church. And you've got to get all the groups together and make bigger paddocks. And you see the stupidity? We are assuming that how you arrange and administrate the church determines its future. That's just as carnal as Israelites who thought that they could administrate their future through Baal worship. Our future is not in our own clevers or our own statistics. Our future is held by this majestic God. If there's anything that determines whether this church has a future, And mark my words, no church has eternal life. People might, but no church has eternal life. If the Evangelical Church of Australia, if Freeway Baptist has a life, it's because of the perspective they have of the Almighty God and his capacity to work through them. I look at the issue of worship, ridiculously that worship has become most of the divisive thing in the church today. But what concerns me is when I go to worship conferences, we talk so much about the worshipper and so little about the worshipped. There's so much about what the client wants and that we better appease the client or we'll lose clientele. Isn't that carnal thinking? Is the future in the hands of the worshipping client or is our future in the hands of this God who is incomparable? the God who has brought us from the grave and will bring us to glory. That God can be competent in leading his church. Or are we like Isaiah, the evangelical church, who sets its temperature more and more with each passing decade on the definition of moral normality that is in the culture around us? We do. We, the evangelical church, are starting to avoid the hot potato issues more and more and we're drifting like pack ice when we should be moving against the current, we're going with the current. I look at parenting, I look at how people say this phrase that comes up to me again and again. Oh, you can't expect that much of our teenagers. I mean, that's normal. That sort of behaviour... That's what happens everywhere. We've just got to accept it. You don't hear that sort of language when the Lord draws near. People become revolted by the sins of the culture. They don't set their temperature on the moral temperature and barometer of the culture around them. That itself, again, is an example of the reversal of the telescope. We have the little God and the massive man. We don't see God in true focus. But when the Lord draws near, perspective returns. Well, Isaiah knows he hasn't got a hope in Hades, literally. He is in the wrong place at the right time. He knows he shouldn't be there and there's absolutely no way that he has got a future from himself, of his own doing. But right then, divinity intervenes. And one of the seraphs flies to the altar of God 
where the sacrificial beast has been slain and the blood of that beast has cleansed that altar and has covered the sins of the nation momentarily. It must have just happened. The coals are still hot and the beast takes one of the coals that has been cleansed by the blood of the substitutionary beast. And he takes it and flies and just says, let this touch your lips. He takes to the point of conscious sin. And that moment, that sin is covered. Don't worry about your sin. Not because sin is a nothing, but because it's covered and you're cleansed by the blood of the sacrificial beast. Now, it's, it's an astonishing picture, isn't it? And, and absolutely, in absolute terms, uh, Isaiah was still the Isaiah that he was the moment before that happened. But the beautiful thing is that we don't have that temple system, but we have an analogy of that system. It's the advanced screening of Calvary. It's the picture of the shadow and now we stop looking at the shadow and we look at Calvary and when you read in Hebrews as it was read to us that we have another tabernacle. It's a tabernacle which is no longer on this earth. It's called Calvary. If the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, if all that priestcraft of the Old Testament could purify your flesh, he could cover over your sin superficially, externally. I love this verse. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify your conscience to serve the living God? There's two truths in this passage I want to leave with you that Isaiah could only dream about. He had a little foretaste in that touch of this verse. And this is the universal human experience. Here he's saying, holiness is a our greatest problem. When the Lord draws near and we are out of sync with him, it's a big problem. But holiness is also a big solution because it was the Holy Lord Jesus the one who offered himself without blemish. Holiness is our solution. He offered himself without blemish to God. So why did he do that? And the Holy Spirit was the container that took that sacrifice. And what has happened is that when we come into fellowship with God, the Holy Spirit doesn't get a call. You notice this? This is critical. He doesn't just get a coal from an altar which no longer exists, covered with the blood of some beast. The Holy Spirit literally takes the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed historically 2,000 years ago and he brings that blood not right to your lips but right to your conscience, your heart of hearts. And he cleanses that. That's the gift of the Holy Spirit. The gift of the Holy Spirit is not the Holy Spirit. The gift of the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit taking the blood of Christ and cleansing you at the core of your being. So why does he do that? 
He does that so you can walk tall in the very presence of the holiness of God without threat, without fear. What a great fortune we have to live this side of Calvary rather than in Isaiah's day that this spirit has offered the cleansing of that beast who is Jesus Christ. You know, when the Lord draws near, you know the Lord has drawn near. When holiness is drawn near, consciences are cleansed. People have relief from their besetting sins if they will let go of those sins. This God will cleanse. If they want their sins, don't get the cleansing. You have estrangement. But if you want holiness, God has the solution in the blood of Jesus Christ brought to us directly by the Spirit. You notice his reaction. It's interesting. The Lord then is sort of tapping his chin at this point. And this Isaiah, who is in the, in the wrong place at the right time, he says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And God is ruminating. The Lord is musing on, on a predicament. Who shall I send? The Lord needs a communicator to get to Israel and to tell them about his disappointment in Israel. Who shall I send? And you notice Isaiah immediately says, Oh, 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 here I am. Send me. You know, that is a sure mark that holiness is drawn near, that people are, have a volunteering capacity. They offer themselves. They become available to serve that God, not just Christian service, not just a career path. They want to serve that God because they've had a vision, a perspective. Of that God. And nothing can compare with doing ultimate service, with serving the God who is going to be forever. There is no missionary who's ever been effective, who's left these shores, who did not have a perspective of this God, because holiness had drawn near. All they could do is respond with their availability. Can I be your instrument? And the Lord immediately doesn't say, well, I don't know. I think, you know, you'll, we'll see how you go in five years' time. Come back, fill in these forms, uh, make sure that, you know, we'll take it to the board, we'll pray about it. No, the Lord immediately enlists this man. That's all the Lord is looking for us to do, is to say those words. Here I am. Take me, if you will. I remember saying those words the first time I ever saw someone come to the Lord as an effect of my preaching. I was inside a little church hall in, in, in Inverloch, down the, down the coast. We had all these carnies in who were running the local carnival that night. Most of them were tanked. One of them tried to urinate against the wall. It wasn't exactly a salubrious surroundings. And I had to preach to these blokes. I can remember seeing these tough little tykes that were used to putting up machinery and tents, 
moving from town to town, sliding down the wall on his knees, crushed with a sense of the holiness of God. Went back home to my dad and I said, I know what I've got to do for the rest of my life. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I know what I've got to do. That when the Lord accepts us and he puts his mark on us, all we can do is volunteer. All we can do when the Lord draws near, perspective returns, consciences are cleansed, and mere members become missionaries, all of us. I was in Adelaide a few years ago and uh, I just passed a particular examination for a particular degree that I needed to have to teach. And uh, I'd really struggled to get that degree in those years and balance family and study and teaching. And uh, So the family had a, a, um, a little bargain with me that if I actually got this award and got a favourable mark, they'd take me out and... I could go to this particular furniture shop, which I really loved. It was handmade furniture in Unley Road in Adelaide. And I could pick out the armchair, the reading chair of my choice. I remember going to this uh, shop and the lovely lady there, uh, her husband and her owned the shop. And I was trying out different chairs for, you know, the amount of drop and, you know, did I have to have a cushion behind me or you know, was it comfortable? Could I sit for hours reading a book? Would I fall asleep? Was it too comfortable? And we, we went through about half a dozen chairs and then we narrowed it down to three chairs then two and I had to choose. And it so happened that the one that would squeeze into my station wagon was the one that I had to buy. And we finally were signing up. And the lady said, oh, well, you know, what are you going to use this chair for? I said, oh, reading. Oh, you do a lot of reading. What do you read? And I said, oh, actually, I read a bit of theology. And she was disappointed. She was disappointed because she was a Christian and she hoped I'd be a non-Christian because she shares the gospel with everyone who buys a chair from her shop. And she gave me this little card which on one hand had her name and email, mobile number, on the other side, I just had the words, you've had a divine encounter. Consider yourself fortunate. She shares the gospel with every person who buys a chair from her shop. What does that tell you? She's a fanatic. It tells me that holiness has drawn near. She's had a change of perspective and this mere member has become a missionary. Sure sign that God has drawn near. The second half, and we won't, we'll just rush through this, but then you look at the commission that this guy gets, and I think if I had this, it's a bit of a bum deal. He, he says, the Lord says immediately, go. Say to this people, two things he's saying here. First thing he's saying, it doesn't matter what I do, it doesn't matter what I say. These people don't want me. That's all he's saying. Now, and Lord gets sarcastic. He goes and says, you know, make, Isaiah, when you preach, I want you to preach so badly that you drive people witless 
and you make their ears dull, they become dumb, their minds become numb, and they just can't stand. That's what I want you to do. What a commission. Actually, I know quite a few preachers who could fulfill a commission, but um, that's, that's not a great career move, is it? Lest they actually, this time, hear with their ears, see with their eyes, and they turn to me. The Lord, in other words, he is fed up. He's sent messenger after messenger and they, they just don't listen. They, they say they want the Lord. They say they want national healing. But these people want to feel spiritual. They don't want to be spiritual. They don't move at all. They're stuck like potatoes in the tub. And it doesn't matter what you throw at them. There is no movement. And that's his first point. Isaiah says, well, thanks, Lord, for that. How long, how long do you want me to preach that for? <laughs> it's a good question. Uh, you know, is it going to be sort of sermon two after that? Or where do we go with this? And the Lord said, I'll tell you how long. You preach that until the curse takes effect. And the cities of Judah... Are laid waste, they're ghost towns and tumbleweed is blowing down the street and the shutters are hanging off the windows. Even mangy dogs don't care to walk down that street anymore. Houses are desolate, it's a wasteland. And another metaphor I've got, I, I see a bushfire coming through. That bushfire is Assyria. And they will sweep through the land and decimate the people so that there will be 10% left. And just when I'm taking the census of that 10%, you know what I'm going to tell them? I'm going to bring the bushfire around from the west and send it through again. It's a picture of what God actually did in history. He brought the Assyrians through in the 8th century and the Babylonians through in the 6th century long after Isaiah had gone. Because God has a goal. The Lord, he, he has a desire. And here it is. It's in the last phrase. It's just like a stump that's left after a bushfire. The holy seed is its stump. You see God's ambition? The way the Lord looks at the future of the church the church doesn't survive by being big. The church doesn't survive by becoming more dominant in society. The church will not survive by being more politically relevant. The church will survive when it's holy enough for God. And what he leaves is the holy seed. Our Lord is not interested in celebrity. He's not interested in competition. He's not interested in statistics. He is interested in the Holy Spirit being the temple within our hearts. That's the church that will survive. The Holy Seed is the stump. We are called the temple of the Holy Spirit. That is saying... This is the place where he'd love to dwell, if that's what we would like. He would love to bless that. I was thinking on the way down this morning as we're travelling down the freeway. It's so good to be able to move down the freeway to freeway. 
It's, not, it's a long way, but it's not far on the freeway. It's sort of easy on the freeway. You get there eventually. Oh, with the help from my wife's phone, you take the right turn, or else we'd still be going if I wasn't was driving. But that's the nature of a freeway, because a freeway has no crossroads. But there's something very delusional in that metaphor, isn't there? No church has eternal life. In this moment, in this day, you've heard the Lord ask you one question. Do you choose holiness? Do you choose holiness? His holiness? Or do you just want to feel holy? Is it really your priority to be that sort of people? Are you easily satisfied with Christianity or do you have a hunger for the reality of the presence of God? Are you an unconcerned sinner who would rather play games with their sin and laminate it or do you have that sense that maybe this is a day you need to give that besetting sin over to God? And say, God, it revolts me. I want to be clean, not clever. You can have it. Is this a day of a crossroad where you are dissatisfied with just being a member, living the conventional Christian life, rather than seeing your life as commissioned by God? All of us are missionaries. Not just those on the board. All of us, if we have had a vision of this God, will not be able to withhold our availability. Freeway Baptist, you're actually not on a freeway. You're at a crossroads. Your future is not inevitable. It's not in Mason's clevers that you'll get there. It's not in your clevers or the talents of any one individual. Your future depends on how you cross this road. Whether you have a perspective that is sufficient when it comes to the image of God as the Holy One. Let's pray. Let's bow our heads. Our blessed Lord, we could easily just close a service here and say a few words. But in the quietness of this moment, we pray that your spirit would give us a sense of how conspicuous our thinking is to you right now. And we would pray our Lord Jesus Christ that you'd help us to rearrange our priorities But Lord, we pray for one thing this morning because we know that Isaiah's life was changed when he changed his perspective of the Lord. And we would pray, our Lord Jesus, that we would see that you are this God, the Great One, the one before even the angels cannot help but worship. 
Lord, as the, uh, the old hymn used to say, we would simply pray those words. A breath of life comes sweeping through us. Revive your church with life and power. A breath of life come cleanse, renew us. And so fit your church to meet this hour. We pray this, God, for your glory and for our enjoyment. In Jesus' name.